talk with Rick and Paul, and today we have some updates from the wine world that no one will want to miss. You've spent another day wasted on the internet, haven't you, Rick? It's where I go for my cat videos. <laughs> no, these are real bonafide news items. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're just full of news about storing wine underwater, powdered alcohol drinks, yeah. the effectiveness of screw caps, and Paul's old nemesis, the word minerality. We have questions from listeners about how to hold a wine glass and about snooty wine writers. We have questions about snooty wine writers ourselves. <laughs> and as usual, we will make fun of wine stops. Stay with us. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And today, we're going to keep everyone up to date on some big, big news in the wine world. There's no big news in the wine world. Mid-sized news? Baby news. Okay, we have some baby news for you. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're somebody who stores your wine underwater. And then it's big news. Then it's the big news. That's right. Here's the bad news. You can't. The Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau, or the TTB as they are so affectionately known, yes. which is actually, if anybody in the wine business will tell you that you never have the word TTB and affectionate in the same sentence, um, they announced that wines aged under ocean waters would be, quote-unquote, considered adulterated, meaning they'd be watered down or something added to them. You and know? the reason is because you can't tell. They probably are not. I mean, the cork usually makes a pretty good seal, but pulling that bottle up from underneath the water, the person who put that wine in the water would have no way of knowing whether the cork made a perfect seal or not because the bottle would still look full, and you just don't know if there's if it's all wine or if it's part wine and part seawater. Yeah. you know, And they've been doing this they're doing, actually around the world. Wineries in Champagne, Bordeaux, Italy, Napa Valley. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Mira Winery in Napa Valley sunk, uh, I think it was, it's like four dozen... 48 bottles, uh, so 12 four you, cases. You've, you've sunk four bottles of wine yes, yourself, you, I have, and then I fell in the harbor. Then <laughs> you fell in the water. Yes, these, they That's put right. them there on purpose into the Charleston Harbor. Yeah. And uh, I like what they called it. They called it uh, aquar, like terroir. Uh-huh, aquar. Yeah, yeah, which actually well, makes no we sense. Need more, we, need we need more French words Yes, we need anyway. more words that nobody's going to know what they mean. <laughs> That's right. Um, but we've talked about how to store wine, so let's talk about that again. I mean, there are some cool, good things Cool, dark, there, and quiet. Right, and you get all of those. That's right. If, and sharks. If, if sharks you, are important, too, for storing If you spent your life wine. at the bottom of the harbor, Rick, you'd be cool, dark, yes, and quiet, too. Right. But it's also why I have a shark in my wine refrigerator. <laughs> home. Um, there is actually one thing that goes on with that, and it is a counter to what we normally argue. Remember, we, we know if anybody's heard us say about don't store wine in the refrigerator on top of the refrigerator, right. vibration, it's stirring the wine around. That's right. The folks at Mira and a few others have said that they thought that the gentle rocking of the waves— actually help Well, of course, you know, wine. there is one of the most famous wines in the world that for years and years and years could only be made by sticking it a ship and sailing it around the world a couple times, and that's Madeira. Key part of the trade to the colonies during the, you know, in the 17, 16, 1700s. And they argued that it was the gentle rocking and sometimes not so gentle when the ships got into a storm, but it was the time spent on the ship that actually softened the wine and made it drinkable. It turned out actually it was probably more the heat than the motion. But what the heck? Um, it's not a completely unusual concept in the history of wine. 
I suppose you can still store it there. You just can't sell it. You can't sell it as yeah. unadulterated wine. There was uh, sort of big news. It was the uh, that load of champagne that was discovered in the Baltic, 1839. It was like 120 bottles, and 79 of them were judged to be very good. In fact, I know that some have tasted so. Yeah. There was also yeah. the Civil War era ship that, that sank off the coast of Bermuda trying to run a Union blockade in 1864. And they... now, now, remember that the ocean off Bermuda is going to be a very different temperature than the ocean in the Baltic. It'd be much warmer, wouldn't and it? And it's the bluest blue you've ever seen. So, what were they, you know, weren't they worried it got too warm? Well, as it turned out, they should have been worried about something else because this was part of this great food festival. I think it was in yep. Charleston or yep. somewhere in South. And they made a big deal about taste, and they opened it, and they tasted it, and it turns out the TTB was not wrong. It tasted like seawater. Tasted just like seawater, huh? Yes, yes. Mm, it was. Mm. Now, of course, if they could have found the winemaker's notes from 1864— I'll bet there would have been a note of minerality and minerality. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say that so that you know that it's not just wine writers that are bad winers, and I need to say this as a guy who spent more than two decades in the newspaper business, um, is that the headline writers— they so, had fun with this. Huh? Well, so w- one of them was the idea of putting wine underwater sleeps with the fishes. Yes. Okay. Others were it was torpedoed, sank, scuttled, full of water, and the TTB takes a murky view. Oh, I like the murky view. Yeah. I yes. like the TTB takes a murky right. view. Here's something the TTB did not take a murky view on. Freeze-dried powdered alcohol. Yes. Alcohol. Alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's been approved. So the same ninny, no-fun folks at the TTB who said you can't put wine in water says apparently you can put water into powdered alcohol to make wine. And, you know, the chemistry of this stuff is pretty interesting because it's not actually dehydrated alcohol. Dehydration means you take the water out of something. Well, there is no water in alcohol. There's alcohol in alcohol. What they actually do is they dissolve the alcohol into a powder that absorbs the alcohol. And then when you add water, the powder dissolves and releases the alcohol back into the water. So it's a little odd that way, it's, but it does in fact work. You know, I'm a fanatic backpacker, and so there was a lot of interest in this from people who want to have a, a nice cocktail around the lake up at 9,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada when they're backpacking. And the idea is, well, you could take this palcohol. And, but it turns out that because they actually— I, I thought that's why we had Buddha bags. Well, it, it turns out <laughs> that because they have to get the water absorbed into this other material—I mean, the alcohol into this other material first, and then you add water, the material actually weighs more than just the alcohol alone. It's easier just to take the plain alcohol. Yeah. There are a few people that are not thrilled about this. Uh, among the critics that called it the Kool-Aid of teen binge drinking. Uh, yeah. And you can see how it would be easier. What? So the way it's being sold is it's sold in these small foil packs. Right. And, and pre-mixed with size. stuff. Yeah, pre-mixed. So you right. add water and you get an instant daiquiri or an instant Mai Tai. Or, but the they company have... that got the first permits, this yeah. is what they have. They have Cosmos, margaritas, yep. a vodka, a rum, and they're developing a lemon drop. I haven't heard them mention Cabernet Sauvignon. No. Pinot Noir. Wine's a little more Bono difficult. Bono de Martre, Corton Charlemagne. You know, they don't sell that to the teenagers anymore, so that's a little <laughs> more difficult. You know? Who was it that told me that the way they learned to buy alcohol was that when you walk in, when you were 18 years old, you walk into a wine shop, and instead of ordering Boone's Farm or, Fanny, or, or Annie Greenspring or something, you order a nice bottle of Chateau Latour, and nobody asks the question. They just sell you the bottle. Yeah. They assume you know what you're doing if you're ordering the good stuff. Well, that's, there you go. Yeah, if you really need so to So they, they don't have the instant great wines yet, huh? 
That's too bad. Grand Cru. You know, dehydrated Grand Cru, there's a market for that somewhere. Yeah. Well, you think the powder would probably age just fine. That's right. You yeah. wouldn't have to worry. and But you wouldn't want to store it underwater because... No. No, that would be a bad move. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you had a very old powdered wine, if you'd have to have old water. <laughs> you'd have to use some of that glacier water that's, that's been in the glacier for 10,000 years yes, before it got melted. Right. Right. Excellent. Uh, all right. I have another bit of news. Yeah, these are great, Rick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, keeping you up to date. Actually, this is something interesting. We we, we got Actually, this, as compared to as the, other the other stuff, stuff this I, is interesting. I sort of like the talk all. <laughs> we actually did a show on this, and we answered questions on this, and there's really no solution. However, uh, this was at Vin Italy. Yes, which and, is the largest commercial wine trade show in the world. It's just massive. 5,000 wineries, 25,000 wines at this show. Yes, and and generally total chaos. Yes, um, but so the, what makes it interesting too is that Italy is a country that uh, had banned screw caps mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, until just recently, and it still has some yeah. pretty severe yeah. limits on screw caps. Well, in all the DOC DOCG wines, which are the top end of the Italian wine culture, they've all taken a pretty strong stand in favor of corks and against screw caps. Yeah, with, with, with and some one or two minor exceptions. However. However, so this was a tasting that was run there with uh, a selection of flagship Australian red wines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and they were wines that had matured in between 2001 and 2004. So these are 10-year-old plus wines. Right, right. Um, and a group of Italian psalms and Italian wine experts tasted these in pretty much close to unanimously. They tasted wines that were bottled in both cork and screw cap. Yep. Pretty much unanimously on all every wine, they liked the screw cap better. Mm-hmm. They basically, you know, the, the 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 kinds of notes that they had were that the wines were bigger and fuller and had more fruit flavors. More minerality. And more minerality. We're going to get to minerality. <laughs> you just can't wait. I can um, hardly wait. So, so, but this is at least one, one example sure. of— um, Well, I mean, we've yeah. done these, and one of the things you have to know about these taste tests is, of course, first of all, everybody brings their own prejudice to us. They will taste different. Which one tastes better? You could pour them for 100 people, and I'd bet you'd get about 50-50. Some would prefer one. Some would prefer the other. Well, Screw caps tend to preserve more fruit. The cork wines tend to be a little softer, a little more complex. What do you like to drink? And eh, depends on what we're having for dinner. Yeah, and that's not a bad point to, to emphasize, too, when you start talking about these sorts of these sorts of taste tests. And that's why you can never really—there's um, no one conclusive— a uh, piece of evidence on a wine that's better than another wine is because right. it's so subjective. Yep. Um, but what it does say, in in many ways, the way the judgment of Paris says, which yes. was that, is that they're equal. Yeah. That's what yeah. it says, is that they're equal. Yep. Um, well, speaking of equal, we have an equally interesting set of questions coming up. So when we come right back, we are going right to the mailbag. Mailbag. Yeah, that's where we're headed. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to open our mailbag. Take those questions. If you'd like to be one of those people that asks a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for just a little bitty click. And if you do ask us a question, we promise to say nice things about you. And if you're new to us, you might want to know what qualifies us to be answering questions. And certainly from the early part of the show, there has been no evidence <laughs> we, that we, we should have, be. We have absolutely no excuse, do we? <laughs> but Rick is a best-selling author, New York Times book about wine, 
uh, in the wine business, a longtime journalist, wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, gives advice to wineries and restaurants. Sometimes they take it. Yeah, not the smart ones. Uh, and Paul is a respected industry pro, or at least he used to be until he started hanging around with me. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at many places, including Napa Valley College, Culinary Institute of America, and around the world, and occasionally on a cruise. So if you're on the right cruise, you got Paul. Uh, our first question comes from Janice in Galt. Galt is near Lodi, by the way, if somebody doesn't know. It's just right up the road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is a good question. I got scolded for holding a wine glass wrong. My friend, he should probably be an ex-friend. Yes, he should. Read in some magazine about how wine pros get all annoyed at people who hold glasses wrong. How can you hold it wrong? And seriously, who cares? Well, Rick, I get furious about people who hold their glasses wrong because people who hold their glasses upside down, there is no way the it's, wine will stay inside. Well, no, because what you do is you, 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 you slither along the ground, and as they're holding their glass upside down, you get to drink out of their glass. Yeah. Yes. What she's really talking about is whether you hold it by the stem, the foot, or the bowl. Right? Yes. And so the stem is that skinny part in the middle. The bowl is where you put the wine, and the foot is at the bottom. Ultimate, ultimate silly snobs sometimes hold the wine by the foot, and they look stupid, and we should laugh at them. We should laugh at them. Those are the people. You see them. They walk around. Now, sometimes somebody hands them the glass the way they've got it for a second or two or three or right. four. But when they walk around the party holding that little little foot, you know, usually they're wearing an ascot. Yes, yeah, and, that's um, true. And what, those that's are true. And possibly a monocle. And so those are the people that you should bump into. Yes, or spill your wine on. Yes. Well, yes. if you bump into them, they'll spill their wine because they're so idi such idiotic. They're, they're, they're dumb. They're, so then they're we get into is it the stem or the bowl and yeah. here's the deal wine theoretically is served at a more or less correct temperature so if the wine is the right temperature and you hold the wine glass in your hand by putting the bowl in your hand you heat the wine up now there are wine snobs who will tell you that's a really crazy thing to do because you're changing the temperature of the wine any wine expert, and I do this at wine competitions, sometimes the wines come out at the competition and there's a glass or two that's too cold. I'll cup the bowl in my hand and I'll swirl mm -hmm. it around. Rick won't tell you this, but I'm actually showing him how to do this yes, on the he's radio. he's cupping the bowl. He's, he's swirling and, it. He doesn't sorry. actually have wine there, which is part <laughs> of the embarrassing part of it. But. but And that's the way you warm up the glass. So if somebody's holding the glass a different way, you know what? Let them drink wine. One of the things I think is funny, and Rick, you're a television writer, so you know this, uh, there have been some critics of the television shows um, in, in which the main characters drink wine and they often hold the glass the wrong way and it shows they're yeah. not really connoisseurs. Yeah. You know, I was at a, a party over the weekend. It was an outdoor party. It was warm. The and only somebody, time they'll let you in. It's true because I have to sneak in while they can't <laughs> tell. And one of my friends uh, brought a, a magnum of a beautiful sparkling wine. Uh -huh. It was rosé. Nice. And, but, but nobody had flutes. Everybody had wine glasses because right. that's all we had. And, um, and I, it, it was one of those things, for some reason, I just happened to look around. And everyone, everyone, there were a couple of wine pros there, a couple of food pros, a couple of people have no connection to the wine industry whatsoever. Yep. Everyone had their hand, the bowl cupped in their hand because they're just – they're on a they're party drinking. on a deck. They're having a nice time. Nobody's paying attention. Yep. And it's – you know, and, and it, was, it was funny because it, I was sort of proud of everybody for not – caring mm -hmm. yeah. you know they're having fun yeah yeah well any yeah. party you're at rick well they're always having fun if i'm at a party <laughs> yes sir all right so so janice you're right he probably should be an ex-friend or at least stop reading magazines I, you know i will say this though because i did run into a story a few months ago where 
it was like, what are the things that annoy you about, you know, and they're asking wine pros. And, you know, and it was most of them were having very generous answers. But a couple of them said uh, people holding their glasses wrong. And Boy, you know, find a new life. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. So this one comes from Kurt Madden in Fresno. Now, Kurt, I happen to know Kurt because he's part of our Fresno enclave. Ah, okay. Kurt is mad, married to Katie Madden, okay. who's one of our regular listeners. Yes, I got it. So she's okay. drafted him, and he has asked us a question. Excellent. And it's a good question because, actually, Kurt's a good guy, and he's he's sort of that's kind of he's, he's, he's being humble here. I mean, but that's how he is. His question is, some of the wines I like best aren't cabs or merlots or anything. They're just red blends. Does that mean I don't have a good palate? Au contraire, my friend. Au contraire. Yeah. Which is French for? Uh, on the contrary. On the contrary. That's right. Or I'll have a pizza. I can't remember which. It's one of those two. <laughs> I thought it meant the water was against you. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, red blends are a big deal, and they're very popular right now. And interestingly enough, if you made a list of the greatest red wines in the world, and that included, for example, Bordeaux, Vintage Port. Both of those are blended wines. They are not single varietal wines. The, the one that wouldn't be probably would be a Burgundy. Burgundy, yep. yeah. Uh, but even even you know like Cabernet or Merlot, those are wines that have other wines in them. Most often likely, do. Yeah. often do a little bit. And yep. in, and in fact, you know, uh, you and I have answered a question like this once before, saying that look, even if you got, there are. There's there are wines that do you know single vineyard hundred percent varietal right but it's still not one barrel of wine it's, it's still wines that's right. blended and made different ways yep. wines are blended and there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and I think the fact that Kurt is drinking cabs Merlots red blends and he's finding what he likes and he's drinking it I think he's doing exactly the right thing yeah. That's that is absolutely That's the way to go. That's all you want. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if somebody does tell you that there's something wrong with them, you you, you hook them up with uh, Janice's friend, uh, who says that he, he hold, she, holding her glass wrong. Right. And let the two of them argue it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got your glass wrong. Yeah, but you're drinking a red blend. And, all right. Anyway, Kurt, just send him down to the end of the bar where they put Rick. <laughs> That's right. All right, and our third comes from Pete Beal in Davis. He's actually a UC Davis chemistry professor. Also, somebody I know. Apparently, I'm our sorry. friends listen to the show. I'm sorry. We are giving advice to UC Davis chemistry professors. Yes, he is. Um, that, boy, that's, that says something about the quality of education in America today, doesn't it? Well, he's not a, he's an enology professor. <laughs> he's a chemistry professor. Okay. And he says, when we go wine tasting, I'm always forgetting the wine or the winery I like, yep. or both. Is there a good way to remember? Well, yes, there is. This is Rick's hot tip it for is. wine tasters it everywhere. Is. You've got your memory device in your pocket, that's and it. it's called your cell phone. And, and you're happy to see it. And you're happy to see your. You should be. And here's what you do, Pete, is that you take pictures of wines that you like mm-hmm. and wineries that you like so you remember them, and you also take pictures of wines that you don't like. And ideally, if you've got like a Cabernet or yeah, a Pinot, but Rick, how do you know a, the difference? Uh, four days later, when you open up your phone, there's six pictures of wine. You and can you can't sort remember, your phone actually. You can't remember which one's which. You you can sort. In fact, one of your friends, one of your master sommelier friends, who is so good at wine that he knows how to use his iPhone, <laughs> was showing me that you know you actually can build little files on your phone, yeah, just yeah. easily enough. Um, or you know what? Tilt it sideways so that so you're straight up 
Oh, yeah, there you go. Vertical your, format means you like it. Horizontal, horizontal format means, means lay it down and I, avoid it. I like this. This is my new tip. I just made that up. That's but I'm a sticking good tip. With it. That's yeah. a Rick and Paul uh, there exclusive. You, go. you heard it here. <laughs> Write this down. <laughs> um, and that's it. Then you can not only remember the wine, but you can go to a wine shop or your sommelier yep. or any place you and are. And you don't even have to know how to pronounce au contraire. You can just show them the label and they will know what you're talking about. Unless they bring you pizza. <laughs> so that's it. But you give you also give them a range. So, you know, because you can describe something about a wine that you like, yep. but also be in a wine that you don't like. So I do have yeah. one other. I have a solution for this. It's a slightly more old school than yours, Rick, which is that if Pete finds a bottle of wine that he likes in a winery, the buy easiest it. way to remember is to buy the yeah. bottle and take it home with you. But he can't buy the winery. No, but he can buy the bottle. Yeah. Although the way they pay chemistry professors these days. <laughs> no, I happen to know not particularly well. Yeah, and that's always a great thing, too. That is actually really good, a very good point. And, and it's an adv- And it then really he is doesn't have to worry about the wines he doesn't like because right. he won't be buying those bottles. That's right. That's true. So you get your phone and your wallet, and you're good. There you go. All right. That's it for questions for now. We'll have more uh, when we come back a little later in the show. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming back, we have some really bad wine writing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Oi, oi, oi. Or whatever it is you say when the really bad wine writing is headed your way, because that's what we've got. Duck. Some really, <laughs> so we've got duck. That's, that's going to be our next one. All right. Paul, what'd you bring in? Well, uh, here's one, boy, I tell you. Closed but layered. <laughs> Seriously stylish and focused, pure black fruit, intense palate, beautifully controlled, velvety ripe tannins, and a very long finish. I don't I'm know thinking what it sounds a little bit like a Steinway Grand Piano. Yeah. I don't even know what most of that means. Do you know what closed but layered means? I haven't a clue. It means that you're going to be really warm. Because you're wearing clothes that are layered. You're yeah, wearing clothes, clothes, lots Maybe of layers. Maybe he's misspelled clothes wrong. That, <laughs> that could be it. Yeah. See, I don't yeah. know what seriously stylish and focused means. Well, I wouldn't know stylish if it bit me in the rear end. So. And, and beautifully controlled. Beautifully controlled. What's a controlled wine? Yes, well, it, it's a wine that is not flamboyant. It doesn't ha- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that would explain it. It's a, it's you know, a, we can explain all of this by using other bad wine yeah. descriptions that we've seen in the past and say, well, this is clearly the opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, so what have you got? Okay. Mine's a, mine is uh, a good one. Features dark roasted alder and mesquite notes mixed together, followed by juicy layers of Linzer tort, blackberry, it's uh, pata fru- uh, uh, and plum sauce. The long, anise-framed finish displays a serious graphite spine for length and definition, which sounds like a golf club, doesn't it? Getting length out of the Except club. roasted alder. What is roasted alder? Well, I mean, so it's alder tree wood. and you roasted it. And you, you roast it, and then you serve that with a little white wine and shallots and aubergines. Yeah, I think that's probably it, because, uh, but notes mixed together. Uh, so, so you've got these two notes, and they're mixed together. How do you know that they're mixed together or that they're separate? I, the other one is Linzer Torp. 
And now, once yeah. again, this brings up my little food writing boy here. And yep, I have you're going to look that up and tell well, us all about it. Well, I know about Linzer Tort because yeah. it's actually considered one of the oldest baking recipes on the planet. And where does it come from exactly? It comes from Germany. Actually, it comes from Linz. Linz. Austria. Oh, Austria. Austria, you're right. Austria, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was, I was talking about when Germans had taken over Austria at that one point. <laughs> yes. Yes, that... So it's this, it's this pastry. It's a nutty pipe pastry and it's got a lattice on top you know it's sort of crisscross we've seen you see many pastries like that now yeah. um, but the thing is there's no one way to make it the nuts can be hazelnuts and walnuts and almond the filling can be red currant or cranberry or plum or apricot so all of that in so this one it, wine how, but and it basically but he's saying it tastes like something that no, he is, says juicy layers of linzer tort so yeah. clearly there must be six or eight of these things yeah. in there yeah I, I must yeah um, Must be last, and he's also patafui is a fruit paste, so it's and it's actually a little hard, and it comes out with a it's a texture. So in any case, uh, it's a uh, graphite spine. Yeah, yeah, a graphite spine for length and definition. Do you have a graphite spine? I do. And do you? It, yes, I do. That's why I can put up with what we do here, <laughs> which is bottle talk with Rick and Paul. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes. Subscribe for free with just a click. We will be back in just a moment, and when we do, we will have all kinds of more questions for you. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I do love those trumpets. Yeah, but don't they know any other songs? No, it's a good one. It's the, you know, you're on demand, it plays, you got to play your song. Okay. That's what they do. It is time for our historic history moment of the week. What historic history do you have? Well, I have the historic history of the Canaanite jar. And this is a key element for archaeologists because the Canaanite jar was basically a kind of amphora, and they shipped all sorts of things throughout the Mediterranean for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Canaanite jar. And depending on how the jar was made and where it was, you know, it had a little maker's mark on it and that sort of thing, you could really tell that they were shipping wines all over the Mediterranean 500 years before Christ, shipping wines all over the place in these Canaanite jars. And you could track them and see who was trading with whom for what. It's one of the great keys of archaeology. The sad part is even though these Canaanite jars were stored underwater for centuries, they're full of seawater now. Yeah. There's no wine in them, they so we'll know what they yeah. they, TTB won't let them sell the stuff anymore. It's, it's, it is rather unfortunate. You know, and one, the other thing about them, too, is they have a point. They, they, they come to a point. And so it was, <laughs> Unlike it, you and me. Yeah, <laughs> very true. But that point allowed them to—it stabilized them, too. They could, well, because the holds of ships actually were covered with a layer of sand. Right. And, and you would the stick the point in the sand, and they would stay there. And it's much stronger than if you tried to make a clay vessel with a flat bottom. Those break too easy. Yeah. So you're right. The Canaanite jar, there was a point to that. Once again, I think we might have missed the point, but yeah. that's okay. Well, mine's sort of ancient but not. We had talked about a piece of this uh, a couple of shows ago. Mm-hmm. Mine's about William Sokolin. He's a New York wine merchant and generally considered publicity hound. And there was a dinner at the Four Seasons in New York. This dinner was in uh, 1989, if I have that right. He had a bottle 
that he said was once owned by Thomas Jefferson. Now, we talked about the Thomas Jefferson bottles, and as it turns out, that they were fake. Well, at least some of them were. Well, yes. Well, this is part of that 1787. His was a Chateau Margaux. He was trying to sell it for $519,750, according to the New York Times. Why 750? I would have thought that's a little high. I would have gone with $519,730, maybe 720. I think you had to cover the tax. (laughs) Or maybe it was the tip. It was one of those two things. Uh, And actually, this thing is kind of, it's an interesting story. So he had sent it to Chateau Margaux, which recorked it. Very nice they, of them. They resealed yeah. it, yeah, yeah, and they added about an inch of a 59 Margot. Wow. Which is, which is you know, a great relatively one. To rejuvenate and re- to reduce the yep. potential oxidation. Yep. So, and, then it, and, and then it was resealed. So he's, so he's this got dinner, this bottle. And it's uh, in, uh, yes, and he is uh, at the Four Seasons, and his dinner is like 190 people at the dinner. is a lot of wine media and wine, yeah, yeah, yeah. wine who's who's. Uh, who's who's, by the way, considered, included Rusty Staub, the old he yes, was a, he the was a baseball player, baseball player a famous wine Mets, collector, and his guest Keith Hernandez, who was a player oh, for the Mets, also at the time. also yeah. a first baseman, yeah. right? Yeah. So Mr. Sokolon is headed towards Rusty Staub. Yeah, he wants to show him the bottle. Wants to show him the bottle. He walks into a metal top tray, uh-huh. and what he punches two holes in the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it didn't bottle didn't break. The theory being these kinds of old glass didn't shatter. He just punches holes in it, and the wine gushes out and soaked the rug. And he had the bottle insured for two hundred twelve dollars, two hundred twelve thousand dollars, which is what he alleged to have paid for this. Yeah. Um, and he did collect on it. And, wow! And it had been. Oh, it, it's considered the most expensive fake bottle ever broken. Ever broken. <laughs> yeah. And not so, stored underwater. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so speaking of fake. So there you are. You've got a $200,000 bottle of wine and you're waltzing around the dining room and what, you're not paying attention to where you're going and whoops, you whack it on the table. He was, he was dazzled by the sight of Keith Holy mackerel. Yeah. Yeah. He actually left the dinner. According to the New York Times report, he left the dinner almost pretty much immediately, uh, somewhat dejected, leaving, (laughs) leaving this trail of red wine, like a blood trail behind him. uh, Yeah. Although. uh, Yeah. No, he got. Yes. uh, Our uh, our producer asked a good question. Matt asked if he got the money and he did. Yeah, he got he got the insurance settlement because at the time, remember, this was the early 80s and I should have actually written down the year. um, But I remember it was like 86 or 89. The 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 um, the hoax wasn't discovered. The provenance for of the Thomas years. Jefferson bottles was not in question yet. Yeah, yeah not right. for another another couple of decades actually. Yep. So it was considered to be um, a tragedy. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of tragedies, I bring you our friend Minerality. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We have talked about this in the past. Yeah. We actually talked about this study, but because I am me and I can't. You cannot I'm a let dog it, with a bone. You cannot I, let it go. So I dug into this study. So this was a study we had talked about, which was the London University in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the University of Burgundy in Dijon, Dijon, France, did a study. They had 32 wine pros in France, 31 right. in New Zealand. They blind-tasted right. wine, Sauvignon Blancs. And they all agreed they found minerality. They all agreed they found minerality. But, but Rick, one of the things— the lead author says, "This is my We're point. still not sure what minerality is. This it's is what I dug up for you, my friend. This it's is not what black I found. and white. It's yep, that's it. And so this is this is your complaint, and it is a good one. Which is they there's this generally accepted descriptor about something that people could just be more specific about. They could just say what it really tastes like instead of saying minerality. 
Yes, it tastes like seawater. Well, or no. even well, better, sort of it, can. Could take, it could taste seriously stylish and focused <laughs> with roasted alder. Yes, and Linzer tort. <laughs> yes. Layers, Layers of, of Linzer tort. tort. Yeah. That's, uh, but I, I thought that's what... what was is interesting and so there is so there is sort of this generally agreed upon I'm going to argue range of flavors and well, it's it was, sort of metallic or stone but when or, we had your friend Mark in here he included for example a scent of pine tree that you get up in the high sierra nobody ever mentioned that in this description yeah. so he, he's getting something else out yeah, of it yeah that's and that would you know you, we we start dividing smells uh, do do not do this at home unless you want to. But then you know, we start to divide smells into fruit and earth and wood and 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 what what these things are when we're sort of trying to de- de- uh, deconstruct a glass of wine, not necessarily help you whether wine's any good. But and so the question is: so was was is pine wood? Is it earth? Is it you know? Is it mineralia? And, pine pine is herbal because it's the unless smell of the pine leaves unless you're pine smelling needles. unless you're smelling and the pine and if you're deconstructing wood. wine glasses I'm going to ask that you put the glass back together yes. fill it up with some wine and drink it yes unless I run into a metal tray <laughs> in any case so that's it even the lead author is of this study where they've definitively defined that minerality exists they can't define it yes they know they know they've seen it but they can't actually say what it is yes that's our classic that's, that's our minerality for you okay I have one other news item before we go back to some questions Okay. Because I like this. It's really only, there's actually, it's not even a punchline, just something I like about it. In Taiwan, this came out just recently that the Taiwan's Investigation Bureau, that's their version of the FBI. The TIB. Yeah. uh, The TIB, the TIB. They busted a company that says it sold about 440,000 bottles of counterfeit Bordeaux. Wow. Since 2010. Um, They, uh, the the value of that is like 1.8 million, so they're selling them relatively cheap. They got a tip. (laughs) The, the TIB got a tip that someone was importing large quantities of bulk red wines from Spain and Chile. And that's how they, they went in and the, raided, raided the warehouse. There were like 30,000 bottles of counterfeit wine. The CEO denies everything. Didn't he, he didn't know where, like, what, where'd that wine come from? I don't know. I have no idea where that wine came from. I don't know. From. There's wine in here? I, <laughs> I thought. I thought we were a tequila Wait, company. I thought I thought Spain and Chile were part of Bordeaux. Yes. Well, and but my favorite part is the company's name, which is why you might have thought it was tequila company. The company's name is Tequila Development. Excellent, tequila development. Yes, I'm. I'm saying if you're, Not, co- you know, I, I was. I think we should have a, a company that writes books that we could call Tequila Mockingbird. <laughs> We are moving right along yes, because we, we don't do puns here no on Bottle Talk puns, at sorry. Rick and Paul. And you are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And we're going back to our mailbag to move away from our bad puns. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to ask us a question, we will give you full credit. Make unle- you famous. Unless you'd rather not, and we can do that too. And you can go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free with just a click. This one comes from Andrew in New Jersey. A writer here wrote about getting something besides Cabernet to go with steak. And he took okay. a bunch of shots at Napa cabs, pretty much saying someone who ordered a Napa cab at a steakhouse was, quote, chasing brand names and prestige, unquote. Nothing wrong with that. Though he did name one he said was okay. Then, th- this is still Andrew saying what the writer said, then he suggested three wines that cost $75, $115, and something he called a, quote, wonderful old school wine, unquote, for $275. 
Andrew now. Guy's been looking at your wine cellar. Right? Yes, yes. Andrew says, I have a couple questions. First, huh? 275 is not chasing something? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The other is, why do some writers seem to hate Napa cabs? I really like a lot of them. And what? so what if you get wines from names people know? Well, it's the old story of uh, the same thing happens in music. Let a singer become popular, and all the really cool people will tell you what's wrong with them. Right. And the right. truth is Napa makes beautiful Cabernet, and the reason it's expensive is because a lot of people like it, and a lot of people are willing to pay money for it. And the wine writer is absolutely right. There are a lot of other good wines out there in the world that actually some of them cost less than $275 I think you can find those, yeah. Um, And he's right. You should play with a lot of different stuff. But if you like Napa cabs and you're buying them, you're buying good wine. And if you're enjoying them with a steak, why shouldn't you do that? Well, and I think that's one of the big points, too, is that this is a story about what to get with steak. And, right. And, you know, it's we uh, will we'll need to do this now, although we're giving away our answer. We'll need to do this as one of our food and wine pairings. So sometimes with how, how, how the steak is cooked and what's on it can, changes a bit. Um, I do with the chimichurri sauce, by the way. Uh-huh. And it goes uh, really good with Malbec. Malbec. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but having said that, you know, Cabernet is like the first place to reach. Uh, sure. For, and if you're going to be reaching for Cabernet and you're going to get one from the United States, Napa Valley is not a bad place it's to start. good place to be. Yeah. And so this is it is this thing where it is uncool to like what everybody likes. And it right. is, unfortunately, it is endemic in the wine world. It, well, it's you know, it's the same people who hate everything but art films because big movies can't be any good. They're popular. Um, and I love Lord of the Rings. See? There you are. And it's it's, it's, this is silly. It's silly. Yeah. And it's what wine writers do to show how cool they are. But it all, what it, to me it does is more often than not, it shows us that the people who are writing about wine in this country are not actually talking to the people who are drinking wine in this country. Or they feel it's their job to tell them that they shouldn't be happy doing what they're doing. They should be doing something else. Yeah. You know, and I, I want to stay on this for just a second because you, you hit now, people on— people have told us that, you, you, Rick, that we shouldn't be happy we should, doing we should, what, we should be doing something well, else. Yeah, we get that a lot. That's true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and look, there are—we need to say this. There are, there are many, many, many terrific wine writers out there. Uh, and and there's many of them that mean well and that— in, Try to do their best job and the taste, and are serious about what they what they do and how they approach their jobs. So we're not just sort of condemning a class. Having said that, there is something in American wine writing that is so different from all other American criticism in a way, which mm. is that you know that is the sense that like you that you know people and there are terrific theater critics and movie critics and art critics and music critics where they manage to educate as they embrace what it is that's mm-hmm. out there and you know although you know something that's popular like Lion King probably didn't get such great reviews I'll bet it did it probably did I'll actually. bet it yeah. did but there is something about wine writing that where so many of the the men and women who do it are still talking about trying to educate and and get people to love wine and at the same time they're telling you, but whatever it is you happen to be doing is wrong. Well, you know, there's this element of, of wine appreciation that says as you get older, as you as you mature, right. just like the wine does, your tastes will change. And the implication is always that your tastes are moving in a more sophisticated and more evolved direction. But you may just be getting older. 
I mean, you know, your taste buds die. You know, actually. for example, I am sure, Rick, that the t- your running times are evolving as you get age, as you get older. But I'm they getting, aren't necessarily getting better. I am getting more out of a run. <laughs> You're getting more out of a run. Yes, you get you get more time out <laughs> of two miles exactly than you right. used to. Exactly That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. So you know, this whole idea that to be a real wine connoisseur, you have to evolve and. I'm just not sold on it. I yeah. think that I, I certainly have changed, but I certainly expect that my tastes will change again as I get older, and that's okay. And I, wherever I am, as long as I'm happy, what's not to like? You get and, to, right. you get to I, like what you like. I will say this about many, many wine writers, which is that it is very difficult to write a column True. every week because when you write the first 15 columns, you really get all the stuff that you've had in your heart all this time, you get it out there in the columns. And then you got to write column 16 and 18 and 20. And you don't want to say the same thing over again, unlike you and me, Rick, because we say the same thing. I'm good with it. All over the Yeah. They don't want to say the same thing again. And so they start going further and further afield as they explore more and more things. But they don't realize most of the people back there reading the column, drinking wine at home, they're still drinking Cab Chard and Merlot. They're liking it. And what they'd really like is, could you please recommend some Cab Chards and Merlots that I should try that taste good? Yep. You know, I I once uh, tried to sell uh, a story on supermarket Chardonnays. What I was going to do actually was I yep. was I was going to evaluate them and I was going to get some regular folk, just uh-huh. you know the the people who shop, you know, you know a couple of celebrities in town, a couple of non-celebrities, right? And and, uh, and I couldn't sell a story, right? Nobody was interested, yeah. Despite the fact that it probably been the best red wine store we ever did. That's right, not red wine, but best red, red with an E A D. Yes. Right. It would be the rest white wine story we ever did. Red, white, white. The Never most mind. red, the most red this white is, wine. Story. Okay, this is another problem with <laughs> wine criticism. This kind of foolishness. <laughs> so, what else is in that mailbag? We best move along to Janine Hartley in Reno. She says we were on vacation in Napa and found a wine we love. We went out to dinner, so we asked if we could buy a bottle to take home for the next night. They said they'd have to open it and stick the cork back in. Yep. What was that about? Ah, yes. Ah, Janine, Janine, Janine. Thank you, You ABC and We live in such a complicated world. uh, Restaurants have what are called on-premise licenses. Which is also a dumb name, but basically means you can sell wine on-premise. No, it means the wine you sell must be consumed. Must stay on-premise. Must be consumed on the premises. Right. So what the restaurant is saying is we can sell you the bottle, but we, in order to protect our license so that we are not viewed as competing with a retail shop— Who has an off-premise license. We have to open the bottle and pretend that we have served you this bottle, and you are now taking what is the leftovers of the bottle back home again. Yeah. And the restaurant is, in fact— both legally and really not only the letter, but also the spirit of the law correct on this one. Yeah. And, uh, and Janine, since you're from Reno, you should know California, and I, I'm thinking Nevada has the same law, which is that you can put you that if you have a trunk, your open bottle needs to be in the trunk. Right. If you don't have a trunk, if you've got an SUV kind of a unit, it has to be. Uh, clearly out of reach of the driver, so in cannot the, be perched between the driver's legs that is as you drive down always the road. A, and, and a straw is absolutely out of the question. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, generally it, it should be in the the compartment. And, far and away. there is a difference because in Louisiana, 
when you buy a mixed alcohol drink through the drive-in window. I have done As that. long as the little paper cap is on the straw they give you in the drink, that is considered a sealed container, and it's okay in the car. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's really easy to drink right through that paper cap. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jenny, that's what it was about. It was, it was silly. It's the kind of silliness that American... Uh, but it is. It, it's a, there are yeah. two basic the two basic licenses. Either a retail shop, which is called an off-premise, because you buy the stuff and you take it off the premises to consume, and a restaurant technically can only sell wine to be consumed on the premises. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one comes from Heather Davis in San Jose. Do I need to rotate my wine bottles in my wine fridge? Is there something I need to do about sediment? Actually, um, just the opposite. No, and yes. No and yes. Yes. No, you don't need to rotate your bottles. In fact, the only bottles that ever get rotated are those in a sparkling wine facility that has not been disgorged yet. So nobody at home ever needs to rotate a bottle uh, for any reason. Unless the bottle is playing volleyball, and then it has to move through all the positions. Well, I thought you were going to talk about the bottles that... But those spin when, yes, you, yes. when you turn them horizontally. Yes. And you know, our, often our silliness gets in the way of actually imparting in, information. So I'm going to withdraw often? that. Yes, I'm going to withdraw that crack so that you can explain because you're absolutely right. You do not. In fact, you should not rotate. Your Shouldn't bottles. Mo- rotate, rotate bottles for any reason right. in your house. Um, now, what did to do about sediment? The reason you don't rotate bottles is that if by any chance, and this won't happen with white wines, but it might happen with red wines, if the bottle has any sediment all of the sediment will sink down along one side of the bottle. I always store my wines with the front label facing up. So I always know that if I pull out a bottle and it has sediment, it's always going to be right down the middle of the back of the label of the bottle. When you open up the bottle, if you pour it with the front label on top, you want to decant it or pour it into glasses, that sediment stays on that one side of the bottle that never gets moved and most of the sediment stays in the bottle. It's the way you leave the sediment behind. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, it's funny too because most folks tend to think that when you're decanting wines, or de- they should decant old wines. And and you 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 should, but only very briefly, and that's to get the set so that you don't pour the sediment. So you pour the the one easy way to do that is to is to pour very carefully. And you've pro- maybe may have seen wine fans have seen pictures of somebody holding a match or a lighter behind candle. the bottle or a candle. Um, you can also yep. a flashlight works just fine. Yep. Um, or any kind of light, uh, so that you can see what you're doing. But but don't decant the wine. But then pour it. The problem with older wines, actually, older wines, those wines that you do need to get the sediment out shouldn't be sitting around aerating for a very long time. Really, that they may start to fade on you, so the thing to do is to drink them actually relatively quickly. I don't mean just chug it, but so. But the younger wines that that, that won't have sediment might need to open up, and those are the ones you leave in your decanter for a bit of time. Uh, on the okay, road, I'm uh, confused now. Uh, it's, uh, you decant for sediment with the older wines, right? And, and then for you pour. Then you pour with the younger wines. Then you pour them and drink them. And okay. the aeration is for white younger wines? wines. And white wines, you do not need to do either. You of just those. straight from the bottle. That's what I do. Okay. Or, good. or that straw if it's sitting between my legs when I'm driving. <laughs> All right, we uh, we uh, have a few minutes left, so we're going to zip up the mailbag and uh, and do a food and wine pairing. But if you'd Excellent. like to ask us a question, you can go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word: Rick and Paul Wine. And our food pairing is on the way. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. 
And we've been talking about food already, so uh, we, w- we were doing meat, now we're doing pasta. Excellent. And remember, pasta is a code word on any wine label for saying this wine is not very good and cheap. Yes. If you missed that show, that was a couple of weeks ago where uh, it was a very interesting study uh, from a Harvard psych PhD candidate. Yeah. Pasta means cheap. Pasta. When pasta gets on the label, as in you drink with pasta, not a good thing. (laughs) However, we like pasta. This is a kind of pasta. And it's lasagna. So there is a pasta pasta lasagna, and then there's a meaty pasta lasagna. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. meat, classic, ragu, bolognese, is, uh, you know, sorts of sauces. Red sauce, red meat. Red wine. Red wine. There we are. We're done. Yep. Thank you very much yes. for listening Thanks. to Rick and Thanks Paul. Oh, no, wait, that's your job. That's the so colors. what kind of, do you have a particular favorite with lasagna? I do. Which is yours? It's a little bit heretical, but maybe not so much, is Zinfandel. Zinfandel, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now, there's another one I would go to, but I okay. figure you're going to go there. Yeah, because I'm going to go to the fact that lasagna is Italian. I and I'm sorry, I just think part of the fun of eating foods from different countries is when there is a wine and a food that come from the same country and possibly even the same region, I like consuming those two together. So in this case, it's lasagna. It's got that rich, meaty sauce. I'm looking at maybe a Barolo, uh, maybe a Barbaresco, something that's big and rich. If you don't want something quite that heavy, you can always go with a lovely, elegant Vino Nobile de Montepulciano. Which is our friend, the Sangiovese grape. Sangiovese grape. Yeah, 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 yeah. All sounds terrific. It's why I went in so that you could lecture me on having to Good. go to Italian. Well, if you, anytime you need fair. lecturing, you just I, let me know. You're my I'm, guy. I'm happy to do and it. I say, hey, you know... I need a lecture. I'm going to give Paul a call. <laughs> okay. I'll bet you and do. And what about veggie lasagna? And I'm thinking I'm thinking lasagna that's lighter, puffier cheese. Right, maybe the, sort of a ricotta cream cheese. sauce yes. rather and than, a, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Maybe, you know, and often shows up with uh, zucchini or squash or something in yep. there. And uh, I'm still going to Italy, but I'm going over to the Veneto region, that area near Venice, and I'm going to pull something like a bardolino or a valpolicella made mm. from the Corvina grape. Yeah. Yeah, little well, softer, delicious wines. I know. I I'm I'm being heretical again. Again, and I'm I'm staying. You're going straight. To I'm hell, staying you California, realize. and I'm staying actually a rich Chardonnay. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's what I'm doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because the because folks you who, can because the folks who don't want me to drink my Cabernet don't want me to drink my Chardonnay. <laughs> that's right. All right. That's right. The um, wine snobs will make fun of you everywhere you go, Rick. Like everyone else. <laughs> that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Pacini. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. And if you'd like to ask. Ask us a question. We will try to give it an answer. Go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. And don't forget, look for us on iTunes. Subscribe for free with just a little itty-bitty click. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's you're probably better off staying away from powdered wine. (laughs) I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. 